Welcome to Visionaries. I'm your host, Jacob Wolf, an award-winning investigative journalist and the CEO and founder of Overcome. I'm joined as always today by Prame, and today's topic is the Saudi Arabian monopolization of esports. Our guests today were Mikhail Klimentoff and Richard Lewis, both journalists. Mikhail is an editor at the Washington Post. Richard is an independent journalist who's been on the show before previously as well. Granted, the past episode was a little bit more focused on his career than a specific topic. And if to catch you up a little bit, although you'll hear this in the intro to the show, the reason that we're talking about this is because a week ago, Vindex, which is the parent company of another company called Esports Engine, was acquired by the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund. They are now sisters to ESL and Faceit, two of their biggest competitors. And that means that now there are three tournament organizers in esports owned by the Saudi Arabian state. There aren't too many left that aren't owned by the Saudi Arabian state at this point. And that means they're quickly building a monopoly around non-publisher organized tournaments in esports. So joining me today, again, Prem, welcome doing back. Doing good. How are you doing? I this was a, a super fun episode. I mean, I've I've wanted to have Mikhail on for a while. He he does incredible work. The the work he's done at the Washington Post, whether it's the TSM articles he's written, uh, or the Marvel Snap that we referenced in our episode with Brent Bo uh, Ben Brode, he's he very clearly has a, a a very specific finger on the pulse of gaming, and I, I think I'm I'm very happy that we were able to find him bring bring him on. Yeah, it was it was a good episode. I think between these two guys, they they have very contrasting views. And I think listeners will hear that in this episode. You know, Richard, he's been on the show before. I'd encourage people to go back and listen to his episode because I think it shows a different side of Richard Lewis that not many people get to see. And Richard, as if you know him or you've heard that episode, Richard is a cynic. He's been around this for a long time. He's been in the space for the better part of 20 years. And, you know, he was one of the earliest reporters in all of esports. And Mikhail is a little bit more fresh. Uh, Mikhail started writing at the Post about three years ago um, and was writing and editing for them. He's done some investigative work around TSM and workplace culture there. He's done some of the more fun stuff, like Prime mentioned, the Marvel Snap article. And recently, Mikhail has been doing some reporting around the Saudi Arabian state's uh, acquisitions. He published an interview on his Substack with Craig Levine, who is the CEO of the ESL FaceIt group, that basically Levine like deflected away from all of the usual criticisms of the Saudi Arabian state, talking about you know killing dissident journalists, the way they treat LGBTQ people. We cover all of this in this episode, so I won't overexplain because you'll hear it again. Uh, as well as more recently, Mikhail reported that uh, he got leaked audio of the All Hands welcoming the new Vindex employees into the company, um, in which they said, crucially, that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, responsible for the Khashoggi killing, as well as uh, the chairman of the Savvy Gaming Group, which is the subsidiary they have all these entities under, is a Huge gamer, apparently plays a lot of Dota 2, uh, according to that audio, which is uh, really, really interesting, intriguing. I don't, I don't know. It's like one of those I mean, facts. It's like, yeah, I mean, I guess he's a gamer, but he's a totally crazy human being for wanting to kill people. So it's yeah. a really interesting thing to me because I'm like, uh, when I think of the 
honestly relatively short history of the interactions between the gaming industry and Saudi Arabia's the the this PIF the public in interest fund um i think the first major move was something that gets brought up in the episode the neom uh the neom and league acquisition correct yeah it was uh neom which is a saudi arabian tourist city that they are building on indigenous land and evicting the indigenous people that are from there they're building a tourist hub that is supposed to be like the new tourist destination of the middle east i i just i love this idea that he plays primarily dota because it feels i know it's probably not this but it feels petty and i i appreciate this idea of like he plays dota because he he refuses to play league because they wronged him. Yeah, I think it's more likely that just Dota's the bigger game in the region. But yeah, uh, we talked about that too. How many you know? Because the the common excuse among these esports executives who sell their soul to the Saudi Arabian state, the common excuse from them is, oh well, you know, there are a lot of players that play these games in that part of the world. True. No one's talking about the players. Right. We're but that we're not implying racism or xenophobia. Nobody has an issue with the normal average person in Saudi Arabia or yeah. you know the United Arab Emirates, etc. We have an issue we, with the governments and how yeah. they treat specific people, notably gay people, transgender people, etc. So it's yeah. it's this really hard kind of line to toe because yeah, it, from a consumer's perspective we're going to see these acquisitions as these companies being complicit in the kind of systemic issues that Mohammed bin Salman Mohammed bin Salman and the the Saudi state perpetrate they they consistently have have kind of doubled down on a lot of these things and even though they have in in the last handful of years um made an effort to provide some liberties to the people within it it hasn't changed the extremely terrible treatment of the lgbt community uh it hasn't changed the extremely kind of poor treatment of the economy by flooding it with saudi money realistically there's there's no single entity that has an access to the resources that Saudi Arabia has simply by merit of being the oil country. They are the yeah. ones that produce the vast majority of the fuel that is used around the world. So they have, they have clean access to the largest source of capital in human history. Correct. Yeah, they're the one one country. They're the hub of the Middle East. They're one of the biggest countries in the Middle East, and they're the ones that, despite you know killing Khashoggi and other things, play nice with the Western Euro- or the Western yep. and European countries. They are an ally to the United States. They're an ally to parts of Europe, and it doesn't matter what else they do because what you just said, their resources are bountiful, and they're things that we in this part of the world don't have as much access to, like oil and natural gas. And so that is it. It puts them in a very unique position. And, you know, we should throw into the episode because it is long. But we also talk a little bit about why esports and the opportunity they have in esports, given the economy and how things are affecting esports more broadly right now, how hard it is to raise venture money and how the Saudis primed with lots and lots of cash can 
do whatever they want, right? Like yep. they have, they have a, I used the a analogy earlier that they are Scrooge McDuck diving into the money pit. And that's true. That is what they are. And they are able to buy these things up for billions of dollars. And uh, yeah. it, it, it's totally normal. It's totally cool. And I do think it's just going to change our industry. I, I think monopoly power is never a good thing, but monopoly power by an authoritarian government is also awful. Uh, it, it's it's going to be extremely challenging. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious as to how the rest of the industry kind of moves forward with how we address what will be other acquisitions. Like, this is yep. by no means the end of, of this land grab. Like there, there will be more to come, and money is a factor in this industry. Uh, we we talked about it in our last episode. The, there's we are in a, a state of of the esports economy that money's hard to come by at the moment. Yep. If if we as a as a industry and as a community get to a point that the only thing that keeps us is alive is a massive buyout and basically selling out all of our principles to the Saudi Arabian government I don't like it I, I yeah, time. <laughs> it's <laughs> I don't I don't think that's viable I don't think that's a good idea our community is way too diverse for that like there's going to be a lot of people that that just immediately cuts out of gaming. Period. Yep. I agree. Well, we'll dive into the episode. Thank you, Prime, for being here with me for the intro. I think listeners will really enjoy that episode. So here we are with Richard Lewis and Mikhail Klementoff. We are congregated today because of work that both of these guys have done over the past two weeks. Catch you up to speed. Mikhail published a interview that he had done previously during his time at the Post with Craig Levine, who is the CEO of the ESL FASIC group, where he asked about human rights violations in Saudi Arabia. And candidly, Craig kind of dodged those questions. Um, I think Richard described that well in his article today. Mikhail also published a leaked recording yesterday about a meeting that had happened after the other Saudi Arabian piece of news, because there's been three of them over the past year, big ones. They have also acquired Vindex, who are the parent company of Esports Engine. Uh, Esports Engine is formerly, or is the people who formerly started MLG, then sold that to Activision Blizzard, and then started out on their own and started a tournament organizer called Esports Engine. Uh, they have acquired Vindex and uh, all of Vindex's holdings, including esports engines, except for Belong Arenas, which is like, a, if you're not familiar with Belong, is an arena business that has arenas in the UK and the US and is a terrible fucking business, candidly. But, you know, n nevertheless, so Belong is not going with them, but Vindex is now a part of the ESL FASIC group. And then today, Richard reported that the ASL FASIC group is organizing a Dota circuit that will culminate into an event in the capital of Saudi Arabia that is functionally going to become like the biggest, I think the biggest Dota circuit outside of the official Dota Pro circuit. And so that is where we are. If you're not familiar with the structure of the fund that we're going to be talking about today, it is the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund. It 
has a subsidiary called the Savvy Gaming Group, which is focused on gaming. In addition to their current land grabbing and esports, they also own stakes in a number of different game developers around the world, including Embracer Group, which they made a very sizable investment, I believe equaling a billion dollars last year. Embracer has done a lot of IP, a lot of IP acquisition work over the past 18 months. They had bought certain IPs away from Square Enix, including DSX or DSX is if I'm correct. And they've also acquired the rights to the Lord of the Rings franchise and being able to make Lord of the Rings games. They Saudi Arabian investment or public investment fund also owns minority stakes in Activision Blizzard, Nintendo, and a couple of other games as well. But I think even though this podcast has not been esports every single week, the last couple of weeks we've been focused on some bigger topics. And certainly the, I wouldn't classify us as ex- exclusively esports pod. I think it was really important to have this bonus episode with these two guys on because of what's happening, which is as esports is contracting, there is a need for capital and money. A lot of the American investors in particular who have supported this industry over the past seven years with their money are done. They are cooked. They are burned. They don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. You put esports in an investment deck and you are basically shut down immediately right now. And so in a world where all of these businesses, I've reported on this a lot, are entering their later stages and it's either acquisition, IPO, going public, or you know finding some someone to throw a lot of cash at them, the Saudis are uniquely positioned as one of the wealthiest countries in the world, obviously an oil capital among other commerce. And the Saudi Arabian state is taking advantage of that and, and land grabbing and esports. So that is kind of the summary before we start into this discussion. But I'll, I'll, I'll rewind for a second. Mikhail and Richard, how are you all doing? Yeah, good. Watching something I've given two decades of my life to slowly die before me is fantastic. And uh, it, it's really good to learn that even people you once had respect for are absolute fucking moral cowards. So I'm great. Yeah, I think Richard summed it up pretty well. I'm doing okay. The the kind of joke I've said a hundred times to a hundred different people over the past two months has been that being laid off is actually pretty okay. Get to go to the gym at 1 p.m. when no one's around. Pool is Me completely too. empty. So that part rocks. What we're talking about, a bit less so, but let's get into it. So why do you guys think we're here? Both of you have covered the space for a number of years now. Why do you think we have reached the point where one country with that amount of wealth, Saudi Arabia, is able to capitalize on this market? How did we get here? You first, Mikhail. I'd love to get your perspective on it, coming from a fresher pair of eyes, I guess. So I was actually going to throw to you because I'm comparatively newer to the space, but I think my guess is just that a lot of esports companies are not built on a solid foundation a lot of them got way over their skis and are now predictably in a lot of trouble i don't think this was bound to happen i think a lot of these companies like a lot of tech companies could have skated on for a number of years there was no need for this to happen right now they're kind of extenuating circumstances but i think just saudi arabia has the money to spend right now And all of these companies are very desperate for that money. They need quick capital. They need easy capital. And Saudi Arabia is an easy partner to turn to in these times. So that's my kind of quick feeling on that. Richard, I'm curious on your take. Well, it's like a lot of problems. Uh, The root uh, cause goes back some distance and some time. 
And the fundamental problem is the people that are now reaping the rewards of the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund and saying yes to the money are the same people, ironically, that put the industry in a position where you can have this element come in and essentially buy everything because everything's been a failure. You know, ESL are one of the top uh, examples of this. That company was in no way, shape, or form, form worth a billion dollars. It was hemorrhaging money. That All they did is apply a sort of metaphorical tourniquet to their business, so they bled out slower than their opponents. And that combined with very aggressive moves in the space, occupying 80% of the calendar in certain games, you know, certain practices as it relates to broadcast talent and, and other things, they were basically able to make any genuine competition essentially end up leaving the space. ESL was the original evil empire, was what it used to be called back in the day. That's what we called them. Uh, I, I, I remember one ESL employee uh, telling me directly, you know, an executive level employee, saying, you know, we may live like rats, but we survive. You know, we're very proud of this fact. So, uh, but what that does is what the, the knock-on effect on the industry is, first of all, competition is strangled at birth, essentially. It doesn't ever get off the ground. But then the other problem with that is like, what does it say when your industry leader is hemorrhaging cash because they haven't built anything sustainable? And essentially, all of esports has been this move to monopolize the entire space and play for a long con where you sell out to a sugar daddy at some point. And, and, and you know, I just did a talk at ESIC, the Esports Integrity Commission, and basically I think they thought I was going to get up and go, wow, isn't esports keen? You know, like, and mm -hmm. I'm just so over that bullshit. So I basically I listed a complete history of esports, and it's a history of m monopolization attempts that ultimately failed. This one will succeed. It's over. Esports, as you know, it is over. The opportunity for like a free market is over. Uh, anything that challenges this ESL Facet Group, Savvy Gaming Group, the the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund is going to be shut down. So to just answer the question quickly before Jacob jumps back in, when you take all of that context in, ultimately, it's ranking competence and and lies and deceit that have brought us to the mm. point where Saudi Arabia can come in and buy everything. Because if we if we hadn't lied about revenue streams consistently for two decades we hadn't lied about viewership consistently for two decades we hadn't lied about engagement consistently for two decades if we'd stop blowing vc money and lying to the vc investors for two decades if we'd stop lying to sponsors for two decades we actually would have built something that we wouldn't need to sell yep yeah the one thing i want to mention really quickly is that sometimes the bag is just too big to turn down i remember when i first started reporting this and I explained this in the newsletter, but I did the interview with Craig a couple weeks after the news that ESL and Facebook were being acquired by Savvy, which was about a year ago, just over a, a calendar year. And my first question, the questions that didn't make it to the newsletter, but that are part of the transcript are like, hey, the money here does not really make sense. Looking at PitchBook, looking at previous you know, transactions, valuations of ESL, this does not add up on any conceivable yeah. scale. And one of the questions I had to academic experts as well was like, why is so much money being put into this? This does not scan for me. And I think ESL and Faceit probably could have found partners who would have paid less, but were more or less morally objectionable. But in this case, the Saudis came truly with a get out, get out of jail free card in the sum of, you know, a billion dollars. And you you don't turn that down if you're a company that, as Richard said, 
is built on kind of sham analytics. In general, I think this is a pet peeve of mine. Online analytics across the board are basically a scam. It's very hard to yeah. believe any of these numbers. I can get into that at another point, but all to say bag was way too big. Yeah. And I think crucially for the people not familiar, I mean, there's three journalists talking on this podcast right now. We're very familiar with the Saudi Arabian state and some of the moral transgressions that they have, the objectable actions. You know, obviously, Mikhail, you work at the Washington Post and notably the Saudi Arabian state killed your colleague in inside of an uh, embassy and, and cut him up using a bone saw, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, and, it, you know, reprehensible because he was a critic of the state. I joked when we first jumped on this pod, I, I did not plan this, but behind me on the bookshelf, maybe people will see on the video, is the Blood and Oil book, which is like a Mohammed bin Salman biography and talks about how he's expanded his influence inside of the region. And, it, you know, what when you look at the Saudi Arabian state, other than the Khashoggi stuff, what is, if you had to explain to someone that knew nothing, what is, why, why is the Saudi Arabian state so sort of detested around the world for their moral moral actions? highbrow summary uh you know it, look it's a combination of things in any kind of theocracy where you know religious input kind of you know feeds discrimination you know i think most people in the western world do find that unpalatable unpalatable which isn't to say that american society is flawless which is the the rebuttal that you always get whenever you try and criticize anything saudi arabia what about ism right yeah, oh, yeah yeah well i mean look as someone that's lived in america and i'm a vehement critic of both sides you know both parties the mono party essentially i you know i was criticizing the u.s air force's insidious movement into esports as well because i've seen firsthand what happens to veterans once they've served their purpose for the american state it's yep. not good. I don't want them anywhere near young, vulnerable people. I might think it's a good idea to go get your legs blown off overseas because it's not. So, you know, but the, the, what, with Saudi Arabia, even, uh, even with the progress they've made, because let's also be real about it. They have made progress these last few years, particularly in the area of women's rights. Now, women of a certain age don't need uh, male supervision when they leave the house. Uh, since, since 2019, it's not a legal requirement that you cover up. I think uh, women are allowed to vote. They're allowed to drive. This, this has all happened in the... They've even got women in the political party now. This is all happened in the last few years. It's revelatory. I never thought I would see it in my lifetime. That said, even if they were to bring to a point where women had true parity and equality in Saudi Arabian society, there has been no movement of the dial on LGBT rights at all. And on top of that, human rights violations are outrageous. We're talking about killing of dissident mm -hmm. journalists. But just recently, they took two... Uh, via infiltration to Twitter, they took two women who lived overseas who criticized the state and arrested them for 35 and 45 years, respectively, for tweets. You combine that with the previously U.S.-backed, now just U.S.-supported US war in Yemen, where I think it's something like 40 children are dying a week, either from you know the the lack of ability to drink clean water or directly from bombs being dropped on them how can anybody support this monstrous entity and say oh because they've made a little bit of progress in the world of women's rights these are the type of people we want to do business with that's well, my you didn't take. even mention you didn't even mention the one transgression you know the one transgression of the original uh, issue issue with esports when this first started coming up and people started talking about the Saudis the first time coming into esports which is neon 
which is built sure. on indigenous land from the people in the region. It is basically, for those unfamiliar, the Saudis are building this massive tourist hub. They're trying to tour, they're trying to basically compete with Abu Dhabi as like the big hub in the region where you go to vacation and hang out and go watch sports and everything else, right? They're trying to like build and it's being built on land that they are forcibly moving indigenous people out of the region. Uh, it is also partly on Yemen land, too. It borders up on some of that, that land also that is related to that war. And, you know, notably a couple of years ago, two different people, because it's not exclusive to non-publisher esports, which I'll explain here in a second, you know, Riot Games and their LEC, the European League for League of Legends, partnered with Neom, and then that partner was camped partnership was canceled within like three days because basically the entire staff outraged some of them who are lgbtq identifying and then additionally blast the one lone now counter-strike organizer that isn't saudi owned as of uh today also partnered with me um, which i want to come back to blast here in a little bit because it feels like they're the next domino to fall right if if they're going to be seeking an acquisition but let's explain the esports ecosystem just a little bit broadly which you know i'm sure the people in the twitter space know but for the listeners maybe unfamiliar that are watching this on youtube or uh the podcast platforms later there are really kind of two different divides of how esports works right now, right? The only people that are making money in this space in any meaningful way, and they're not making it from esports, they are making it from they are making it from the games themselves are the publishers. So there are people that own the game. They own the IP. They are truly the real valuable companies in this entire ecosystem because they make the games, they can monetize the games, sell skins, in-game items, whatever it may be, right? And basically, esports is an advertising vertical for them. I'm talking about Riot Games and Activision Blizzard in particular, right? And and yes, they are losing money on esports, but you you know, they're not looking at the accounting line how many skins were sold. But the the thinking is that they are selling in-game stuff to somewhere, you know, kind of outset the cost. Then there are non-publisher in esports, which is the problem here. And this is games like uh, some of them have some publisher input like Dota and Counter-Strike, right? Like even though they do outsource in Counter-Strike the major events, the two tentpole events of the year to a third-party organizer, they're a little bit involved. Valve helps a little bit. And Dota, where they've gotten more involved with the pro circuit. But there are some other games that are similar too. Rainbow Six Siege, which has had an event in the United Arab Emirates or was going to prior to staff, again, town outrage before. And so these are these ecosystems where the publishers are a lot more hands off. They just do licensing. They just basically give license to people to run. And that's where companies like ESL Facet Group and Esports Engine and Blast and others come in. Yeah, and the that one is thing why I wanted, the Saudis are capitalizing. In, um, in the pitch deck that I received from somebody where, you know, the CEO of Vindex, CEO of EFG or co-CEOs of EFG and the CEO of Savvy were talking to the newly acquired employees one of the lines on the pitch deck, the, the sort of aspirational vision for Savvy, I have it written down here, was beyond gameplay is where players and fans become community. And the idea is that, you know, the publishers control the game. That's like, that is the moneymaker right now. In the next 7, 10, 15 years, we're going to figure out how to monetize the community that exists around games. That's the goal. That's the ambition. Right now, we're not seeing very much success in that, but very much like that is the plan. Yeah, and the and the short term need is, and loss because the Saudi the Saudi Arabian government will lose money on these things pretty significantly, right? The short term loss 
hopefully for them, maybe from their perspective, will will be offset by the long-term gain. And so I want to talk a little bit about sports washing them and what that means and how it applies in other sports. I know Richard in particular, you're, you're a huge soccer slash football fan. So I'm sure you can speak about this more broadly. You know, we we've seen even more recently, the world cup this past year is a good example of this with Qatar. You know, they built all these different stadiums. They brought over displaced workers from Southeast Asia, right? They lived in fucking terrible conditions. If you go look and do a little bit of research and they built these massive soccer stadiums in a very short amount of time for the world cup. Right. And and the World Cup was like perfect, uh, you know, great, like huge event. Messi gets his his trophy. Finally, it's huge. Right. And even and even Cutter was doing a little bit of what we consider sports washing, which is basically that though all those moral transgressions mentioned earlier become more normalized and the reputation of the state becomes more normalized, normalized because you are doing good things somewhere else. Right. So basically because you because the World Cup went off without a hitch and like it was a huge tournament and it did so well, it got, got so much viewership. You think less about the Qatar, you know, broader human rights issues, them bringing in those displaced workers and mistreating them. So, Richard, how would you define sports washing and what have the Saudis done to date in other sports? What's well, kind of interesting, actually, even though sports washing is a relatively new phenomenon for me, you know, I've identified sort of three distinct phases and we're in this kind of third iteration of sports washing as, as, uh, as far as I can tell. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm an adjunct professor now at a university. I teach in a sports integrity course. I actually talk about this quite a lot. And when sports washing first happened historically, it was just that sort of very simple ideal of we put money into something that is kind of desirable, a desirable product from people external you know, to our country, maybe people who have different values than us, and it's a way of saying, hey, look, you know, they're not all bad. They don't give their citizens civil liberties and they do commit human rights violations. But ultimately, hey, look, they like football too. They're just like us for real, for real. That's for the Zoomers. So they, they so you go, okay, well, look, how bad can they be? We all love to kick a ball around, so it's good. That was just phase one, very basic sports washing. Then you move into phase two. And phase two of sports washing was essentially to occupy as much cultural space as possible. So you end up with this debate, which is, you know, like, for example, you end up with people like Charles Barkley, you know, a former colleague, you know, when we were all working at Turner Sports together, and he's saying about this golf and the Saudi Arabian investment in mm -hmm. that, he's saying, no, 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 why shouldn't they get paid? Why shouldn't they get paid? Everyone else is doing it. Just like uh, Mikhail found out in his article, this is a very common excuse because it's become culturally acceptable to take the money. And so for a long time, I think people felt that was going to be the end goal for sports washing. It would just become so ubiquitous. There was no way anyone could point fingers because you're throwing stones from a glass house. But the reality is we're now in this phase three of sports washing. And what's that? Well, it's the most insidious one yet because what they do is they get you addicted to the money and then, like all drug dealers, they threaten to turn off your supply. And what would happen now if that happened? Mm. What would happen if they pulled out of all the games development companies? What if they pulled out of all of the esports companies they've invested in? What if they did that simultaneously because, you know, people took a stand? Well, yeah, everyone's sure unemployed tomorrow. tomorrow. Yeah. The scene yep. is dead. It's gone. They control it. They got, the, they got the button for the life support. And that's what they're doing in every single solitary sport or media rights group that they're investing into. It has gone beyond say nice things about us or say nothing at all to we own you 
and we can turn mm. you off whenever we like. Control was always going to be the end goal, and that's what we're seeing now. Yeah. Well, On the subject of sports washing, I also – this is a, a huge pet peeve. There are sort of three common things that come up when executives are trying to excuse sports washing. And the first is that, you know, we're not part of the government. We're not involved in the government of Saudi Arabia. Like, we don't make these decisions. And that is just, you know, not true. Uh, of course, they are not functionally a part of the government. But I think if you are working at a company that's chaired by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, you are involved with the government. Uh, enterprise and the royal family in Saudi Arabia in particular can't easily be kind of distinguished. One hand or one always has a hand in the other. Uh, the other thing that I hear a lot is our culture's not changing. We're actually, you know, we're treating everyone right. We're going to keep the same policies that we've had before. Uh, we're going to, you know, have the best in class DEI practices, best in class HR. None of that is going away. And that's not really an excuse. That is the sports washing. The thing that, that these people never seem to account for is that by implementing those things with Saudi money, you are laundering the Saudi reputation. It's not that you are doing something good and that kind of cancels out the moral ledger. You are laundering the reputation by doing this thing that you see as good. Whether that's worth it is kind of a different calculation that obviously people fall on different sides of, but that is the sports washing side of things. It is not, we're not sports washing because we're doing a good thing. It is, you are sports washing because you are doing or think you're doing this good thing. Um, the very last thing I want to say is that that one of the things Brian Ward has said, Brian Ward is the CEO of Savvy, <laughs> he said that, you know, he visited Riyadh and he was surprised by what he saw and it didn't comport with the kind of Western interpretation of what Saudi Arabia is or is supposed to look like. And I think that is the point of this sort of thing. Richard just reported that there's going to be an event in Riyadh. And when fans go to that event fans from the U.S., fans from the West, fans from the region, what they're going to see is a sanitized version of Riyadh. They're not going to see yeah. the ugly side of things. And they're it going to think... Me almost, by the way, of the, the movie The Interview with the mm. with James Franco and Randall Park, and Randall Park is playing Kim Jong-un and welcoming mm. an Amer American journalist into, into the country, and he shows them all these things. Look, North Korea, they have food? Look at yeah. this, right? And then, like, and then like behind, the, you know, behind the scenes, it's like, oh, yeah. shit. Like, the stuff is not not the same exactly so. fans are going to see you know this ces looking arena in Riyadh, and they're going to say well i live in a liberal democracy but they don't have this in terra hot indiana so things must actually be really good in saudi arabia they're not getting the full picture and that's part of the point by hosting these events you're sanitizing the reputation when brian ward presumably was taken on his tour of Riyadh by representatives of the crown prince I can't imagine they were giving him the most accurate picture of what the kingdom actually looks like. That's not what that pitch would have been. So yeah, I, that always, that never quite sits right with me. Yeah. I think notably too, something back to Richard was talking about is that this is not a exclusive to esports phenomena. I, I think, no. you know, obviously the, the Saudis have gotten more involved in, in soccer slash football more broadly which is the biggest sport in the world but you know they aren't necessarily in the same way they're not 
they've done some stuff with Riot. They, you know, Riot ran an event there, and so it's not like they're not com- like completely removed from the publishers. But in the same way that they don't touch the publisher esports as much, they don't necessarily touch the the big big leagues in in especially American sports, right? The the NBA, the NFL, etc. Haven't done anything over there quite yet. However, no, uh, they China. are. Yeah, they yeah true, but they are touching the more niche sports that like esports needs capital right so you mentioned richard golf so my my former colleague kevin van Volkenberg has done a lot of great reporting on sports washing and golf and you know the league live golf which is sort of paying phil mickelson and a bunch of other golfers a ton of money to do this and there was real concern he did not ultimately that if tiger woods joined live golf everybody would join live golf and then it's over right just like esports all the you know all the money's there right because tiger's the legend and one of the most respected golfers in in the sport but they're doing this otherwise too f1 is going to have a annual circuit event in in saudi arabia every year until at least 2027 based off the current deal also, the WWE is very, very cozy with Saudi Arabia. They've done about two events there a year on average, except during the pandemic over the past few years. And there was even reporting that they were going to be bought, bought by the Saudis because right now they are for sale. And my other former colleague, Ariel Hawani, has debunked that reporting, but it doesn't mean it might not happen. It just has not happened yet, as previously yeah. reported. So this is not an exclusive to esports phenomenon. They are finding areas just like esports that need money. And they have an infinite, to Mikhail's earlier point, an infinite bag of money. They are Scrooge McDuck in the vault and jumping into the coins, right? Like, they have so much capital. And I think that's, that's the problem. That's how we got here, right? And I think that's, that's really important. I want to talk about the effects of what this monopoly may look like. There have been a lot of people not talking about that part of it. There's been some very minor reporting. There's been some really bad reporting on this in particular, because it's not just the sports washing element, but it's the fact when you have three different major tournament organizers, face it, ESL and Bendex all under one umbrella, that things like talent salaries, et cetera. And Richard, you would know this better than anyone. You worked as talent for a lot of, a lot of events, including ones ran by those two, by two of those groups. Right. And and previously MLG as well, before they spun off and became esports engine, there are things like that then. And they also, they can undercut other TOs and basically as long as they lose more money, that's fine. Right. Like uh, we'll, we'll charge you less to run an event. Right. And, and that's, you know, the, for example, Esports Engine has a really big contract with 343, who is the publisher and developer of Halo. And so they run all of Halo Esports, right? So they they can really kind of come in. Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about what the other monopoly effects are more broadly and, and what we could see. So let, let's start with talent. How do you guys think this will affect talent, the people that you see on broadcast, the commentators, et cetera, and their ability to negotiate a fair wage? Well, I mean, first and foremost, and and, and this is 100% going to come, whether ESL executives can say publicly, oh, you know, Mohammed bin Salman shares our values. And, uh, you know, one thing I I can safely say about all of these kind of like mega wealthy oligarch strongman figures is they don't like criticism very much. Very fragile egos, I can't help but notice. Killed a journalist on the one. And and if, you know, there's a number of people that are rightly critical of the Saudi Arabian state and the activities that they've engaged in. 
and those people are abs absolutely going to be frozen out. I mean, if they wanted to work for these companies in the first place, it'll happen slowly, gradually over time. The reasons won't be specified. I mean, what one of the things ESL loves to do with its talent, because I mean, both ESL and DreamHack, which is part of ESL, I mean, you know, they were like really terrible companies to work for when I was talent. And they're all, they've kept many of the same people. You know, what they do is they keep you in the dark about like, you know, what's a reasonable rate, whether they're going to hire you again. It's all done for a promise, a wink and a handshake. And they don't like it when talent talk to each other or ask for like minor things. Like, for example, if you're traveling with an injury and you might want some leg room, uh, no, you're not getting economy plus. We refuse to do it even now. Um, you know, and, and other things as well is like, you know, am I going to work your event? I need to plan my life around 80% of the calendar or not having 80% of the work. They just stagnate and make up excuses for why they don't get back to you. So, I mean, ultimately, of course, they're going to freeze out anyone that potentially threatens their giant bag of money. And so that's the first thing. The second thing as well is how can anyone reasonably take a moral stand now when they own everything? You know, if you're a CS member of talent, I mean, I, I know friends who publicly said they won't work for ESL, so they're, they're effectively retired. But those are few and far between. You know, let's mm. say you've got kids. Let's say you've got a mortgage. Let's say, you're, you know, you're a functional adult in that regard. And you want to keep making a living doing the thing you love. Well, now it's compromised morally. And, you know, I try not to hold it against the talent so much while I'm doing my righteous indignation, moral grandstanding shtick. But there is something to be said for it. You know, are you, you know, by taking that money, you can never really say anything about any objectionable sponsor or tournament operator ever again, which I'm sure is a very nice, you know, plus point uh, for the Saudi Arabian PIF and the ESL FACET group. So, I mean, ultimately, you must be in their good graces to have work. And ultimately, you must be morally flexible, I guess would be a nice way of putting it. And and, and so I, I feel for the talent in that regard because it makes a very uncomfortable, it's a very uncomfortable decision everyone has to make. Yeah, I can almost imagine even the opposite side of things where talent gets smothered with money, where, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Instead yeah. of. There'll be that too. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be. I imagine both of these things where some people are frozen out and other people are given like ESL and face it were in the first place way above market rate pay, which I mean, for talent to a certain degree, I want to say like, if you are an individual in this system, it's hard to say how culpable talent is. Um, but there are going to be people who get the extra leg room who are flying, you know, Imperia, uh, people who are treated to fancy dinners and so on and so forth. Um, and we're just going to see certain talent is more pliant when it comes to this sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, you know, put it this way, I, a lot of the talent, uh, you know, and, I, and I'm not really talking about the, my friends uh, because I wouldn't really be friends with them if this was true. But I've, not, I've met a lot of talent down the years and worked with a lot of talent down the years. I've even been a director of talent, responsible for talent hires and negotiations. I've seen both sides of the equation. So, um, but, I, but I will say, I mean, think about like, there, there, there was talent that was just unbearably egotistical and narcissistic based on getting like their name on a stage for a video game, for example. You know, I, I, you know, I don't mind, you know, talking about StarCraft too. 
and how that space operated because it's been like 13 years or something. But, you know, at the end of the day, there were a number of people in there that wanted insane day rates that didn't make sense and got them, you know, day nine being one of them, because if you didn't have day nine at your tournament, was it a StarCraft tournament at all? And he absolutely wielded, wielded that power like a diva and a tyrant behind the scene. Or on top of that, there were other people like you've got to have tastosis along with the hiring concepts and the money and all the luxuries and all the decadence, which boosts their ego comes actual input into other hiring decisions, which they also wielded. Get on the wrong side of a favorable piece of talent and you might never work again. The Saudi Arabian state might be the least of your worries. So talent has always been fraught with peril and politics, like working in that world. But um, unfortunately now with this sort of bottomless pot of money, I think it's really going to bring out people's basic instincts again if they're not a morally upstanding person. And I think the reason to clarify why we're talking about the talent is because I don't necessarily expect protests from players. <laughs> you know, like the the players, players in esports are very immature. Players in esports probably aren't the best geopolitical educated necessarily, right? They're not the ones that are going to tell you, rattle off like we have during this podcast, all the transgressions of the Saudi Arabian state and why those are more morally reprehensible. Players aren't going to grandstand. We've seen some teams some teams pipe up, but they're still going to take the money, right? Like when the initial acquisition of ESL Faceit went through, Team Liquid, for example, and they're still going to participate. They still participated in ESL Pro League. And so I think the teams in their vulnerable position also it, are going to say and do what they got to do because there's no other way to... They're such fraught businesses. And I think that really circles back to a bigger conversation too long for this podcast, which is... You know, esports companies, on the, especially on the team side, and there were some tweets from Hastro, the founder of Team Envy yesterday, that I had to aggressively bite my tongue on not to rip rip him to shreds. Um, and knowing that I had interviewed him about the Overwatch League early on and how ridiculous the valuations were. But there were some tweets last night about kind of how the publishers are holding the keys and not helping. And I, I think the teams are also slightly responsible. So back to my original point, esports companies are media companies. And for those unfamiliar with how business works, media companies are valued in acquisitions, in investments, three to five times their revenue. And if you look at the Forbes most valuable esports teams list that comes out every year, <laughs> which many, it it's ridiculous, but at the same time, many of the team owners like the publicity. So many of them sure. open up their, you know, a stupid version of their Excel sheets and books from QuickBooks to show, you know, like EBITDA earnings before interest uh, tax and basically profits. They show that, but it's like minus this other expense. Oh, oh, offices, which is like $3 million here or whatever, right? Like so, something ridiculous. They like always fudge this a little bit, but they'll go, oh, we, we earn, you know, $44 million in revenue every single year. And we're worth 500 million which goes, start doing your math there, that's more than 10X. And so you have these companies that are purporting to be worth the same value as tech companies and other things, right? And because tech companies have something real that if they close tomorrow, they could sell off and somebody else could take it and buy it and go do. 
Esports teams have none of that. They, they, we've seen with FaZe what the public markets think about esports companies. They are media you companies. Mean billion that are dollar valued FaZe? <laughs> it's now worth, I haven't checked market cap today, but I think less than 100 million in, in the public market, you know, clearly. But to Richard's point, yes, saying they're worth a billion dollars and they're not. So these companies are truly, truly not worth anything near what they say. So when somebody like the Saudi Arabian state comes calling, time to pick up the phone. Hmm. I mean, just on the, uh, just in regard to the to the orgs, I do find that a lot of people are willing to let them off the hook, and because all an esports organization really is is sort of the tainted fever dream of a failed businessman who gets to lord it up in a world of young adults. Essentially, I mean, that's the model for them. Um, some of them have, you know, become great brands, but that is the kernel from, you know, that is the the nut from which they all grow. But um, you know, I, I find it incredible that they get let off the hook when many of these orgs are actual direct business partners of ESL. They don't just play in their leagues. They're signed to a contractual agreement with them. They co-own the ESL Pro League. So when, when t through the Louvre agreement, which is publicly available, so when people, you know, when, when Team Liquid, for example, says, you know, on Monday, they're saying, hey, we're down in Texas protesting these, you know, an anti-gay bills, which is super important to us. And we, we love you all. And they bask in the adoration of social media. Because that's what it's all for. It's just narcissism. So they, they don't really care. It's like every corporation. They don't care about anything. They bask in the glory and everyone gives them likes and retweets and they get their little dopamine hit. And then on Wednesday, they're announcing it's actually okay to play in a place that criminalizes homosexuality because reasons that we have justified, all of which are green. It's pathetic. So don't let these people off the hook. They're moral cowards and hypocrites, just like everybody else. Yeah, one thing I, I want to note actually on that on that point is that we started talking with talent, but I think in the grand scheme of things, if you were to create a sort of moral ledger in this case, talent is way, way, way down the list relative to orgs where some of the people at these orgs are having conversations with folks at savvy are directly involved in these moves talent is you know they're individual people they're not unionized they're competing against each other even if they're friends it is a dog eat dog world with orgs like these are suits sitting in meetings making decisions about where money is coming from where money is being sent far more culpable here than any individual member of talent. And even though we started with talent, I want to be clear, kind of put it out on the record that if you're upset about this, the person to go after is not the person you see on the screen when you're watching a broadcast. It's the, the players behind the scenes who usually don't make mm -hmm. their names known, who are directly engaging with these leagues, with executives at these leagues, with executives who work for Savvy, and so on and so forth. I want to circle back a little bit, and this is maybe a little bit of a meta topic, but I think communication is really important. I think the biggest thing I was surprised about your piece a little bit more than a week ago, Mikhail, with interviewing Craig Levine, is the lack of media that these people have done since this, <laughs> which is very tactile. You know, when Savvy first acquired ESL Face It, I believe Brian Ward, the person you mentioned, who's the CEO mm. of the group, only did a single interview, which mm. was with the Sports Business Journal. Mm. And the Sports Business Journal, the article didn't dive super deep into the transgressions of the Saudi Arabian state. And then 
there was a second interview with Hunter Cook, who is in the space at the moment, which was one of the royalty of Saudi Arabia, one of, one of the family, who was a lot, a lot more aggressive in its questioning. And I, mm. I respect Hunter for doing that. But it's very clear to me and why I was surprised about talking to you, Mikhail, is like, I think a lot of people in this space are in the media are boxed out because like the three of us you come calling we're gonna ask the hard questions we're not really afraid of it and i don't want to make this about us but i do want to make it about like the media communication strategy here because i think that's extremely crucial so i i think you need to view every interview with a, a savvy executive or every interview with an efg executive through the lens of that being their strategy in that presentation that was sent to me one of the slides showed a roadmap for Savvy. And it was like, okay, we announced we launched at this time and we acquired ESL and Face It then. And then further down this roadmap, they had a selection of clippings of headlines that they, they placed in different media organizations. I say placed not in the, in the sense of like they paid off some journalists to write XY story, but they give interviews to media companies and personalities that they think will generally view this from the perspective of, this is a transaction. They view it in the same way that Craig Levine views this, which is, this is business. And I mean, I wrote this in that initial newsletter that you referenced. As I was writing that story, I got a separate PR email from the head of MTG. I forget her name. Yeah, I can't recall the name of the CEO. And I said, oh, hey, would love to chat. I'm also talking to ESL right now about this acquisition by Savvy. Can we set a time to chat? And the PR person got back and said, yeah, let me reach out. I, I believe the CEO's name is Marie. I may have it completely wrong. They said, let me reach out to Marie and figure this out. And then got back to me and said, of course, oh, it doesn't look like we'll have any time in the foreseeable future to talk mm -hmm. about this. And I, I got back to them and I said, hey, listen, I'm a huge procrastinator. The story is not on a deadline. Set up a time whenever. Like, truly find me 15 minutes in this person's calendar, and I'll do it two months from now. And they said, it doesn't look like that's going to be possible. Of course, these people are not going to talk to press that are going to ask difficult questions. That is a deliberate part of the strategy. They view this as the ordinary course of business, and they are going to go to outlets that also view this as the ordinary course of business. Yeah, and and look, I mean, you know, my my internal sources are telling me pretty much what you've just said there, what you've deducted, and that is that they don't want to talk to media they consider hostile. This is a standard corporate approach, frankly. It's mm -hmm. nothing new that under the sun, but I guess it's the first time we have a huge esports operation that treats the endemic esports journalists with utter contempt. But that's fine. I mean, you know, whatever. That's the game that we're all playing, right? I mean, I don't want to have to agree. You know, if I want to interview Brian Ward and ask him about the ridiculous things that he said, you know, like how Saudi Arabia has done a 180 and how he'd never partner with anyone who would oppress his daughter, right? Like, don't know mm. about that, mate, but whatever. You know, like if I, if I had to sort of compromise and he'd be like, I want to stay away from those topics, the interview is ultimately worthless anyway. All I would be doing Correct. is carrying water for them. Which is like, you know, if you look at the venture beat piece that came out with the Vindex acquisition, clearly a plant, clearly pre-agreed, very tame, 
in what it said about Saudi Arabian ties and, you know, it's come under criticism, I think, was the line for its human rights violations rather than it has perpetrated human rights violations. But, uh, you know, it, it's like this is just how the game is going to get played right now. Unfortunately, I actually think esports journalism's had a little bit of a renaissance right now. I think some of the best things that could have happened to us was all ended up on Substack, getting shit canned mm-hmm. by verticals that never believed in the project, whatever, right? Because now we, we have that true freedom. I see a good crop of journalists that are at least going to try and hold these people accountable. Mm-hmm. Just obviously, you, you can't. You can't stop them. They've already won just by virtue of who they've aligned themselves with. It's just sort of a, it's insipid resistance at this point, but I'll go down swinging. <laughs> One thing I'll, I'll say very quickly is that I think this is another issue where, um, similar to the kind of talent versus org dynamic, I would not say that like journalists who run these stories are necessarily bad journalists. I do want to come like a tiny bit to the defense of Jordan who wrote the Venture Beat story. but I think. Having worked in a newsroom, Richard, I'm sure you'll agree with this to some degree, you need to get stories out the door. And not all of those are going to be hard-hitting. The ecosystem now is such that you have editors that have demands of you. The editors have editors and managers above them who have certain demands of them. You need to put words on the page. And if you're going to get an exclusive, maybe a coverage two months down the line, you'll uncover more, you'll learn more, you'll share it. For now, all you can do is play the cards that are dealt. And I think the ecosystem is not very good for like letting people cook. Truly, like you get an interview and you can sit with it for a while and think about it and yeah. really take the time that's necessary to make it the fullest thing it can be. So, in this case, Richard largely agree with your point. Want to like lend some breathing room to Jordan who put that Venture Beat story out. Um Sure, I- and it it's not it's not a direct critique of him sure, but sure. you know it, it it it's it's like i get it the the problem is i don't know enough about what was sort of pre-agreed upon before that yeah. goes out the i have genuine concerns because yeah. i know these are the type of people who ask for crazy shit i know mm. from having reported about all the nonsense esl has dabbled in down the years i mean you know I, they've changed company policy because of stories i've written internally at least twice you know they 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 run anti corporate espionage drills you know i because they simply cannot be trusted they cannot be yeah. trusted they will always do it. so it's like what do you, what faustian pact are you making as a journalist if just to get that exclusive it's not one i'd feel comfortable with if you don't want no. to come and answer the real questions i think you know it's not it's not the type of content i would do but i also do understand if you work for a mainstream publication and digital media is in the toilet journalism is the new norm and access journalism is a is a has made a resounding comeback because everyone's on their yeah. knees financially right yeah. the the bit yeah. of light that i'll i'll grant here is that i think just by doing any kind of work any consistent work in esports journalism you get your name out there and you come every tiny bit closer to people coming to talk to you um, I think Jordan moves a step closer with her reporting to some employee at EFG or some employee at Vindex saying, oh, this person wrote about this. I know that this is a person who knows what's going on here. I'll reach out to them. I'll leak X, Y, Z. It is, you know, a battle of inches. I think I, I'm, I felt very lucky when the recording was leaked to me from that internal town hall because it felt like the culmination of, you know, tough questions asked over the span of three years where 
Not everyone sees every tough question. Not everyone sees everything you've put out. But I was on somebody's radar enough after three years of work that they came to me with that. And my hope is that as, you know, Jordan keeps working at this, more people come forward and she's able to tell more complete stories on media. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's it's a bit off topic, but I think the answer really is truly in the middle. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, venture venture beat. I have taken real issue with um, oh, yeah. Dean Takahashi over there, who's their games reporter, who on Games Beat, who uh, does some of the most aggressive softball interviews I've ever seen in my fucking life. They're mm-hmm. terrible, and they have been from Activision Blizzard CEO Bobby Kotick to uh, Ryan Wyatt, the former head of YouTube, who yeah, went and worked Bobby at a crypto Kodic company. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like this is who that's that's the publication you call. And I've known Jordan for a long time. I don't think she's malicious, but I would say, yeah, that is the publication you call when you don't want a hard question necessarily asked, especially because her colleague's reputation it speaks for itself. And so but I do think, you know, again, meta discussion here a little bit. It does make me very sad the date that esports journalism is in because you know, the LEC Wooloos, Richard talked about this last time he was on the show, the LEC Wooloos and the Anita Modems and the other, you know, the guys that were doing the roster reporting, you know, it took me three months to go from not ever having written an article and calling into Richard's show to having functionally a full-time job doing this thing because all I did was a speck of reporting over like two months, right? And back at, you know, that's the heyday, right? And it's like, these guys are doing, you know, cranking shit and, you know, covering an entire beat and they can't even get a job because the, the engagement is just terrible, which I think, Brings me to my bigger, broader point is the state of esports as a whole and the audience issues, which I think are really related to this. I'm on the record many times on this show and my newsletter and other things saying that the the amount of audience that exists that engage with esports on a regular basis. So remove the outliers for a second, because those are the ones that go in a lot of people's decks. The outliers being the League of Legends World Championship, Counter Strike Majors, etc., the ones that have the crazy ass viewership that you go like, oh, like 44 million people watch this thing, right? Like that's gonna happen. That is the Super Bowl. That is the World Cup. That is all the big sporting events that draw out people that don't give a shit about the sport any time of the year, except for that one time of the year, and they watch it socially. They consume it with their friends, et cetera, right? That's how you get the big numbers. So remove those. We've used those too much as an industry to prop it up. I'm talking about the people that tune into the LCS every single day or tune in you know, to the uh, play-in stage of a Counter-Strike major, literally the first stage where like a bunch of teams you've probably not heard of are playing against like maybe one or two teams you've heard of, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know those people that come back and watch those things every day, I think that number is far smaller than we all thought originally. I think it's like, and then you take a, a small portion of those people and you funnel them down to the I engage on Twitter about esports every day of my life. And then you take a smaller funnel of those people and you go, I read digital media about esports and I consume other things around esports. And I think that's part of the reason we've gotten here is because like that really small number is the people that have to prop up this entire industry from a monetization perspective they're just the ones that have to join team liquid plus and cloud nine stratus they're the ones that have to buy the merchandise they're the people that have to subdomine richard and mikhail Substacks, etc right like and that's a much smaller number of people gaming is big but esports is not and i think that is part of the reason we've got here i'd love y'all's thoughts on that i'm blessed i just got my uh best-selling Substack tick today apparently uh, nice yeah so uh, I'm, I'm i'm doing okay fine Fuck you, esports. Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, whatever. Um, joking aside, look, the the the, the reality is that there, there, 
there's even more to the problem than meets the eye of just the audience not being very big. Uh, for when this thing was on the come up back in '99, everybody was basically giving their shit away for free. That becomes the de facto norm. That becomes the expectation. By the time we get to what I would say is the golden age of esports, you know, 2010, and I call it the golden age because we just bounced back from the global recession, the subprime mortgage crisis. Uh, but we had new tech, you know, YouTube, Justin TV, owned TV. And on top of that, we had a big new shiny game, or two big new shiny games to congregate around, StarCraft 2, League of Legends, that were obviously hugely popular. And it was all a game changer. And so everybody was able to get in there and build things that they thought they'd be able to monetize down the road. But here was the problem. They built it all up, gave it all away for free. That became the expectation. And then, you know, like MLG, for example, were, were, they said, like, let's run a pay-per-view. And people went, no, absolutely not. We won't pay for it. Can, can, you, can you even imagine like that in a, in a sporting world, you know? Hey, we've got the Premier League. Should we sell the TV rights? Nah, no one will, no one will buy them. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, the whole model would just pancake in on itself. But because we'd given away like 11 years of esports ostensibly for free with bigger prize money, better production value. I mean, some of the shit people were doing even back in the day when I was at Gottfrag in 2006, you know, it was like tricorder shit and all this stuff. You know, it was like we, we, we leveled up so quickly when you consider we literally started on a Winamp plugin <laughs> to, to being on, you know, huge like high fidelity videos and TV production crews to then live streaming. You know, we were always mad cutting edge, but we were giving it all away for free. And everybody said, don't worry, it will pay off somewhere down the line. The community will have our back. The community will chip in a buck oh five so we can all be salaried to do this and keep our standards high. But turns out, absolutely not. In fact, the average esports fan doesn't spend anything. And when asked to spend, they will, they'd rather give $5 to, to a, you know, a top streamer like Ludwig or someone than they would give $5 to their favorite tournament operator. And that's, that's a paradigm that just has never been addressed. They're too busy pandering to fans rather than telling them to oh, grow up and put some money into this thing. Otherwise, the whole thing is unsustainable. You're the consumer. If you get to consume it all for free all of the time, everything's dead. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's that's the problem the esports business has had right from the get go. And 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 you know, yeah, obviously it's not a very big audience to begin with in real terms. So no wonder. But you know, these companies lied about it for years. They lied to all those people who invested, all their sponsors. Lies, 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 lies. If the metrics don't look right, they just change the metrics. So, you know, I can't feel too sorry for them. Yeah. I, the yeah. other thing I want to say, I, I think Richard's completely right on that. Oftentimes you'll see that audiences are hostile to esports journalism. If it, you know, undermines fan, uh, things that they're a fan of, orgs, personalities, players, they just, they don't want to hear it. Alex yeah. Lee is in this, uh, in this space right now. And he wrote this piece about 100 Thieves. And I think it was like a, pretty straightforward piece a couple of employees came to him and said hey here's this like very specific weird thing that nade shot does which is that before he has a salad every day he gets mad at people and then he apologizes to them like that's super weird it might not rise to your personal level of like oh i'm never going to engage with hundred thieves ever again but it's like a kind of a good thing it's to know in public behavior that, yeah. yeah 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 it, it like like pierces the veil a tiny bit and there were so many people including folks who are viewed as 
reliable information sources for a lot of esports fans who were casting doubts about this reporting that to me seemed rock solid. And I like the fact that that hostility is baked into a culture that relies on fandom so much. That is a big challenge to getting this work out. I remember I, I, I wrote a pretty small story in the grand scheme of things about uh, TSM and FTX's money and the fact that I had heard from a number of employees that TSM had spun up a Dota team because they wanted to please Sam Bankman Fried. And I went to, I, I believe, the Dota subreddit and I shared this news. And all of a sudden, you know, Walter from TSM and Dominic Callis, who was then running competitive ops at, uh, at TSM, were in the subreddit, really mad at me. And the fans turned like that. They were like, oh, my God, thank you, mm. Walter, for disclosing the real truth. You know, the Tsar has come out of the cat uh, out of the palace and he's speaking to the little people. He's just like me for real. And now we don't believe this journalist anymore. The thing that we 10 minutes ago believed now we don't believe at all. And that is like in the grand scheme of the things that Richard mentioned, that's like a pretty small problem with the esports ecosystem and esports journalism, but it is there. And I think every journalist has encountered this at some point where audiences are very, very fickle and they don't have a sense of what's reliable, who's putting out information to, to what end for whose benefit and so on. Yeah, you're you're speaking to the person who broke one of the most mundane like team breakup stories in mm -hmm. League of Legends history, only yeah, for man. it to nu almost nuke my career for a month, only then to be vindicated and it do the opposite and swing me back like a goddamn rubber band to the other side of being like, oh, this guy's right all the time. Mm -hmm. It's uh, yeah, I've been been right in the crux and center of that. So uh, you're you're speaking my language on the point that Richard made. I want to talk a little bit slightly about the pandemic before we start taking audience questions. The I remember during the pandemic when the world started shutting down on March 15th and everything started to, you know, all the sports leagues clammed up before, you know, the NBA figured out how to do their, their bubble at Disney world and everything else. When there was like that two month period where there was nothing, no sports, right? I was working at ESPN at the time and we were kind of told from higher level executives, like, you guys are the guys like you're the ones you've got, you know, you're, you're covering the only sport that actually is maintained, right? Because we were, we're esports, we're computer games. We have the internet. We, we can figure out how to turn online in about a week. And a lot of organizers did, right? Like they just moved online, said fuck in person competition. We got this and did so pretty successfully, obviously some hiccups, but you know, there was a big narrative and ESL Facebook group among this, by the way, because I interviewed Craig Levine that summer about this very specifically and about sort of what was going to happen to esports at the time. And, you know, I, there was a huge narrative that esports is the next big thing. This pandemic's only going to help it. People are inside. They're going to start wanting some sort of sporting content. They're going to watch esports. Mm. I think now we have a much different view and we're much better educated. And to Richard's point, I think, they started watching Twitch. Twitch broke record numbers. Twitch got massive engagement, but it wasn't the esports tournaments. It was the influencers. And the influencers on Twitch became modern day celebrities, some of them almost overnight after years of trying. Ludwig is a good example of that. You know, they became modern day celebrities because people were lonely 
they didn't necessarily want to watch an esports event. They wanted to find community. They wanted to figure out how to connect with other people. And when you have an entertainer ostensibly sitting there staring into their camera and talking to you like a human being, reading their Twitch chat and bonding with you in a weird parasocial way, you feel accepted, especially as the world around you falls apart. People you know are dying or getting sick, and everything else is just you know unprecedented for the first time in a hundred years, right? Like it, it's a it's a difficult time. The first time this has happened since the internet, the dawn of the internet. And so influencers have risen. They like you know the influencer, the creator economy is much bigger thanks to the pandemic, especially the live streamers in that community. It's part of the reason they get the massive deals that even the esports organizers don't get anymore, and. The esports people, I think, to Richard's point very saliently, is there's nothing personal about an esports broadcast, right? There's a little bit of this, and Richard, you know this firsthand from working at Turner and and a part of the E-League product. There was such a desire to be traditional sports, to be buttoned up, suit tie, the whole thing, right? Like yeah. we are, you know, we're doing this. There's nothing personal about it. So you can't say on an esports broadcast what an influencer can say, which is, Hey, I need your subscription today. I need you to pay it because I need to pay my rent. It's harder to say that when you're a multi-billion dollar company like Turner or ESPN or any of the others who were in that space at the time, right? Because they aren't going to believe you. They're going to say, fuck you, you're corporate money. And I think like that's that's exactly what they've done. I think that's applied to esports teams. It applies to esports organizers. There's no sort of difference from the audience of understanding how investors and investment differ from revenues, which you know are not where they should be mm. the dirty secret of the pandemic uh where if you talk to any of these esports executives and you catch them at the right time maybe they're you know two scotches deep uh they'll tell you straight that they actually welcomed it it was uh it was a real you know everyone was losing money going into the pandemic you know there was a chance to essentially move all your operations to online and save a ton of costs it also gave you an excuse for inferior production to what you were used to. And basically you could sort of, you know, do less at less cost. And everybody understood that it was difficult. It was complicated. People were suddenly doing broadcasts over, you know, Zoom and phone in again. And, you know, people were remote. They weren't in a studio. This saved the industry a ton of money. And all the while, by the way, even the esports numbers were creeping up. Esports viewership had a bump during the pandemic because, as you rightly say, what else is there to do? Like, you know, where I lived, I, I was told if I went out the house to buy shopping more than once a day, I could be arrested. We had like two lockdowns. So, you know, um, yeah, you watch, you, you consume more online media. You know, Amazon Prime and Netflix had huge boosts as well. So, you know, it, it's it, that there was like, you know, a complete fabrication that the pandemic was actually hurting esports. If anything, it gave some operations enough time to like stabilize, save a bit of money, and get away with kind of under delivering to their fan bases. In fact, funnily enough, some of these companies that did that haven't even got back to, you know, right. what, where they were at pre pandemic levels in terms of quality of product. So there's that aspect to it. I'll, I'll say the only esport that was sort of actually impacted by the pandemic was the overwatch league which is doomed to failure anyway but its model was so contingent on people going into buildings and buying tickets and being sat in the stands eating hot dogs and hugging each other for the epic moments of watching 
you know, someone try and chip away through a shield and infinite health for like 10 minutes. But um, yeah, you know, th th they were definitely hurt by it, but they were going to fail anyway. So who cares? It looked um, like it might work there for a second at the beginning of 2020. I mean, I went to the, the New York homestand and we had some of my colleagues go to the Dallas homestand and like, those are packed. Those are fun. Granted, those are two of the biggest markets in the United States. I think like my take was not all the markets are going to work. Some are going to be better mm -hmm. than others. The China one, you know, the ones in China, the one in Korea, the, I, my thought was like Atlanta, Dallas, New York, uh, LA, which are, you know, three of the, or four of the biggest markets in America were going to be fucking huge. But I was like, eh, the others were not sure. But to Richard's point, yes, like the Overwatch League, <laughs> the, a lot of owners saved a lot of money and a lot of cost. And uh, notably, too, I remember that summer reporting about some of those teams taking uh, paycheck protection loans despite being right. owned by billionaires. And I remember calling like a PR rep that worked for NYXL, for example, um, and saying, like, why the fuck did you guys just take a paycheck protection plan? You're owned by the Wilpon family, one of the wealthiest families in New York. What the hell is this? And they were like, oh, we're going to return the money. And they did to the to their credit. But, you know, like, why did you do it in the first place? Right. Like, you just tap your billionaire's bank account a little bit. So. Yeah, I, I I agree generally that uh, esports saw a temporary boom, but I think we're now in a spot where it's aside from those outliers, it's not been consistent, and the creators grew more than esports did, certainly. In the end, sure, yeah. So, um, so we're gonna start taking some audience questions. My team, Prime, etc. Uh, please start inviting the people. I think the first question. Let me know if we need to read this or if we need to. Uh, or if they're going to come up and ask. I think the first one is from underscore Viper underscore CS. I guess the one thing I'll say very quickly while, I, while we have a, a bit of dead air on the last point mm. is that I think esports organizations or, or publishers have kind of caught on to the fact that influencers and personalities are the way of the future. And so as they're developing future broadcasts, they're thinking about how do we put these players front and center? How do we develop narratives, mm. make these stories about these people interesting? And sometimes you can't. I mean, the the <laughs> grim truth for is that for starters, make it, for starters. By the way, just to interrupt, to make yeah. esports work in affluent communities. I think the, mm. one of the biggest issues I've been like talking talking about is like esports players are boring because they come from rich families, right? Like mm. most of them do, not all of them, but like when you're like a you know, in America, an affluent white or Asian kid who has never like ever struggled in your life with any level of adversity, like you're the one of the most boring fucking people in the world, right? Like it's not necessarily like the traditional sports paradigm where you make it out of a bad poverty stricken neighborhood because you're an immense athlete. And that's what makes storytelling, what makes LeBron James and Jason Tatum and others that are, have that story fucking awesome yeah. is the fact that that is their story, right? And so uh, I think that's <laughs> not to interrupt or necessarily for long, but that's, that's I one mean, of the biggest I, problems. I, I, I also think the problem you have is, though, like, you know, the fans are just idiots. Like, the fans <laughs> are idiots. Like, I mean, seriously, like, you know, imagine what it's like to be like a 45-year-old corporate suit and you've got to plan a broadcast that's meant to be straddling the line between, like, entertainment and, and mainstream sports. And you put out a segment that you think is perfectly fine but fans think it crosses some tra transgression because this is the only thing even close to sports they watch and the rest of their like you know content that they consume is anime you know it's gross like it's <laughs> pathetic like you see these like yeah. teenage mobs on social media like harassing like professionals for doing segments they think are beyond the pale or covering stories they think are beyond the you don't know shit shut up i shouldn't have to listen to your opinion you're 14 why 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 can you even tweet me <laughs> Why can you even tweet at somebody like me? 
So I've got to say, you know, like one of the problems you also have is we all tell, we end up play, telling the safe story. We all end up telling the same story. You know, this player had it a bit bad one time, but now he's good at video games, so it's okay. And his aren't esports great? And you just see that yeah. story a billion times. Like it's just what it's just one of the out. best. One of the best stories I brought it up on the show before, and Viper will get to your question, I promise. One of the best stories I've ever covered in my career is one of the most tragic, and it is about a and the post did some reporting on this too. Um uh, sorry, Mikhail, my story was better. Uh, no offense to, to Noah and everybody at the post. Um, but I I wrote about uh, an NBA 2K player named O'Larry who was a victim of the Jacksonville shooting in Florida with the first smash shooting ever at a gaming event. And that story premiered, uh, a 12-minute video segment premiered on a sports center on a Sunday morning in 2019. And O'Larry was getting messages from people that didn't know a damn thing about gaming, didn't care about esports, but were resonant with the fact that this guy had an immense struggle and an immense tragedy happened to him, and he made a cool comeback in his career, and he beat Ninja for a fucking fan-voted SB. Right? There you go. There's the real story, not this, like, oh, they have, like, this crazy stat in this game that only, like, a hundred people understand what that crazy stat actually means, right? Like, that's... Yeah, I, I, to me, like, that's the biggest problem. One of the biggest problems, the, the accessibility the, of storytelling. The challenge for a lot of these broadcasters is going to be to figure out how to do compelling storytelling that doesn't rely on stuff that happened in the server. And that'll be a challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess, you know, fingers crossed that they figured it out, figure it out because I want to learn compelling stories. I want to know who these people are. But sometimes the answer is, you know, they're just not very interesting. You hope... Everyone has this deep interiority. Some people choose not to reveal it. Some people, you know, maybe they just, they don't have it. So fingers crossed that broadcasters figure this out. Yep. Okay, Viper, go ahead with your question. And guys, this is where you turn up your phone. Sure. Uh, hi, guys. I really appreciate this space. There's a, a lot of important information that you're putting out to everybody. Um, I, I wanted to ask about the real end goal of Saudi Arabia in this, because especially in the esports part, because obviously land grabbing and, and neon aside, I mean, esports really doesn't feel like a like a market where they can make much real world impact. And surely, let's say, OK, they they successfully um, wash their image and, and they get to a point where people kind of associate them with some positive esports image, whatever that would be. What is the end goal? Because surely if they want to do the things that they really want to do, which aren't uh, that good, which you've already talked about, um, surely that immediately that veil is going to be torn away, right? Well, well I was getting that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I can, I can speak to that uh, a little bit. I mean, obviously what you have to consider is one of the reasons they're doing this. It's not just about the sports watching aspect of it. The cultural aspect and the geopolitical aspect of it is just, you know, th those are two facets of a, of a broader problem. This is also about very economic reasons for Saudi, uh, re Saudi Arabia in terms of job production. You know, they've got a very young country. If you look at them as a demographic, you know, they've got like tons and tons of young people who live there who want all the cool Silicon Valley style tech jobs. You know, they want they want to be. You know, like California, mm. you know, people want to work in cool San Francisco of, of the Middle East, basically. Yeah, exactly. That's what they're essentially aspiring to do. Well, you know, how do you create how do you create jobs if people don't want to come and create companies, you know, in your in your country for whatever reason? 
Or what you do is you go out and you buy an industry in its entirety, and then you incentivize people to create those startups and create those spaces and create where, you know, uh, enterprises where people are going to, you know, get go out and get those jobs. And the, and the the net benefit to the government, of course, is that is a form of, you know, pacifying the populace, right? Like as long as they're satisfied with the way things are going, they can work a job that they want for the pay that they want with the benefits that they want. They're probably not thinking too much about the fact that while they're there on, you know, whatever chat program they're using, they're being spied on. Or if they go on Twitter and they criticize the state, they're going to end up in jail or worse. You know, so it, it's it's it, it everything everything that the Saudi Arabian state wants to do is ideologically ideologically compromised. It must be viewed through that lens. But if you just want to pull something out about like end goal, you know, there it is. It's the it's simple economics. It's it's the classic. The other thing I would I would say here is that entertainment does really matter. I think we look at esports right now and we say, oh, esports is, you know, relatively small. It's kind of irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. And even in Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030, I believe is what it's called, esports is not like the big thing. It is one of many things that they're investing in. So I don't want anyone to make the mistake that Saudi Arabia is like one national priority right now is gaming and esports. It's a lot of things. It's infrastructure. It's just diversifying from away from oil and gas but who makes entertainment how it's made all of that really does matter i i would just kind of implore you to think about your own life and think about the things that matter to you and the things that you talk about with people and the things that take up hours of your day and it's the games that you play it's the movies you watch it's the tv shows you enjoy the stuff that you talk about around the water cooler all of that plays such a big role in everyday people's lives, more so than hard-hitting news, more so than XYZ other thing. Sort of casting it off as a thing that's irrelevant or not that important, I think it, it misses the point a tiny bit. And especially if we sort of zoom out and think, oh, a decade from now, Twitch is not going to look like Twitch. Entertainment is going to look a lot more like Twitch. The entire internet is going to look a lot more like that. Um, and right now, like Saudi Arabia is planting the seeds to be a major player in what entertainment looks like a decade from now. Mm. And yeah. just to add a little bit on that as well, you know, obviously we're talking about end goal. What you will notice is the biggest chunk of the money they're putting into is esports and gaming. And, and I would wager it's not lost on them, like how young that demographic skews. And what a great thing to do to start normalizing your human rights atrocities around the world to a teenage audience who will just sort of, you know, passively consume the content with this little bit of background noise about Saudi Arabia. So by the time they're, you know, able to sort of conceive of it, it's become second nature that everyone just consumes this co content and it's normal. Uh, not to harken back to too much to cutter but during the world cup you know they brought out i show speed who is one of the biggest influencer he is the largest live streamer on all of youtube right now mm. he himself is a, a teenager and principled individual 
Um, yeah, and you know, the obviously the there was virality around the moment where he's in the stadium and he starts saying Kanishiwa to a man who is not of that culture um, and was being racist to this to this man also. But more broadly, if you look down like what he was posting on Instagram and Twitter and others, he's like walking around with royalty in full garment, right? Like, and he's to my knowledge, he's not a Muslim, but nonetheless, you know, like this is uh, it, that is what they want. That's it's it's that influence. It's the normalization to Richard's point to to an audience that doesn't really that isn't and the esports is right for it isn't geopolitically savvy etc and i i do want to ask you know one thing i forgot to mention earlier and uh, i promise we're going to get to the other audience questions but you know something i i've heard a lot when you start talking to some of the people that do these deals is that oh well you know the fan the player base in the Middle East is massive for this game and that game and this game. You know, this was like when Riot was under fire for the Neon thing. That was part of their their reasoning. Same mm -hmm. with with Ubisoft and Rainbow Six. They were like, oh well, this is you know the massive the player base is massive. And and I'm sure there are plenty of people that play these games, any of the esports titles in there. And Mikhail, you reported that uh, Mohammed bin Salman himself is a big gamer, which is pretty funny. Massive, um, massive I wanted, gamer. You know? Do you know which? You know which game he plays? Is it Counter Strike? Oh, somebody actually sent this to me recently. Let me let me look through my DMs really quick. I would be I, amazed if it's anything other than Dota. I yeah, I believe he's a Dota player, and he spent what? Okay, uh, there was one year where he spent almost forty thousand dollars on the battle pass. So just to just to give you a sense of how wow. like how much he is in a different stratosphere from everybody else who plays these games, everyone else in the audience. Well, I wrote this in the newsletter, but if you are listening to this, like, no matter who you are, you might be, I, I see, like, heads of esports orgs in here, and I see random friends of mine who casually watch esports. The distinction between those people might be big, but all of you are much smaller than Mohammed bin Salman. You have no common cause with him. You'll never be on his level, near his level. You should feel no solidarity with him for the fact that he's a gamer you live in very, very different worlds that are magnitudes different. The fact that he's a gamer, I imagine he, he might even be a, a, a fine conversationalist. Maybe he's Western educated. I don't know for a fact. None of that changes the fact that you are in very different stratospheres in your life. Yeah. Back to the original point I wanted to mm -hmm. ask on this, though, was how founded, obviously we said like digital media analytics are kind of shit and that, uh, that includes gaming. So it's kind of hard to to look how founded is it how big some of these regions are in these titles uh more broadly by audience i, I mean side. listen having worked you know boots on the ground in you know a number of tournaments i've been hearing this for a long time i mean keep in mind esl's already run an event in in uh, saudi arabia i believe uh in the in kind of semi-modern era um and uh we've obviously had a few events in the united arab emirates as well but I remember distinctly in this must have been 2007 ish, maybe 2006, uh, back when champ the championship gaming series came along, which was a $60 million, you know, kind of uh, news call Murdoch backed play to take over esports, making all the same mistakes back then that the Overwatch League is making right now. They were so convinced that there was a huge Counter Strike player base that was untapped, you know, that they created a team called Dubai Mirage. 
You know, they really felt that movement into the Middle East was going to be big, and it was a completely unofficial team. Uh, they told a group of players, basically, you will be drafted. Don't, because it was all rigged, it was all bullshit. Um, you know, you're going to be drafted, and it'll be, we'll have a franchise in Dubai, and you'll be the players for it. They were practicing. They were practicing against the other championship gaming series teams. Now, the CGS went bust, and so we never know whether they would have expanded into that area or not, but that was the game plan. They thought that was it. Now, I suspect in the modern era, the true reason we're going into the Middle East, well, it's twofold, right? So the first thing is a number of legacy esports titles have lost viewership and interest uh, in certain regions. And so we need a new energized fan base mm -hmm. who are maybe going to be super interested in something new. Uh, and so the Middle East represents a great you know, territory for that. Uh, but you know, we've lost Russian viewership. Uh, because of the you know the conflict in Ukraine, where Brazilian audiences' tastes has changed. There, there's a there's been a bit of a sea change in just how popular Dota might be in China. You know, there's all of this stuff going on. So the Middle East makes sense to a new territory, a new frontier. But the other thing is the Middle East and the, and and you know nations, you know the the oil producing nations with the money to burn. They're the ones that will subsidize your project. That's all right. esports is. It's just one bit. It, it needs to be underwritten. And so who's yeah. got the money to do it? Well, you know, Chinese mega corporations, you know, under the influence of the CCP and oil producing nations that maybe don't care about human rights so much. That's where we're at. So, I mean, the, the movement of the Middle East makes complete sense to me, almost irrespective of whether or not there's a play, player base or a fan base there. I would also say that it, it and truly, I think I, I want us to get to whatever the next question is, but that's often like the fact that there's a player base i'm somewhat sympathetic to that but it is virtually always deployed in a disingenuous way it's never Correct. meant seriously and i i think the clearest the ceos executives at game publishers and tournament organizers are never this brazen but i'm reminded of a a recent video by carlos who is formerly of g2 where he put out some video and he was like Oh my God, I was rooting for the World Cup to succeed. I want, you know, I, the West Cucks to choke. Qatar is such a good country. And you could see it was very obvious there that what he was angling for was money. Other executives are never going to be that brazen. But that's always deployed. The, the, the excuse that there's a huge audience is virtually always deployed at the highest level to cover for the fact that that the real reason people are going is for the bag. They don't want to turn down the money. That is it. And when you hear that excuse, you can go, yeah, I want other people to be able to play this game. I don't think every subject of whatever country someone was born into is, is responsible for the actions of their government. There are good right. and bad people in countries that have open access to a lot of games and esports right now. Well, they try, you, to, they try to turn the bigoted gun against you, right? And they're like, well, do you hate Middle, East, Middle Eastern people, <laughs> right? Like, they what, use, are you a racist? Are you a, are you a racist? And it's yeah, like, they, they, no, they used no, the no word we have an issue with inclusion. the government. They use yeah. the word inclusion uh, over and over again in the uh, ESL face of group literature. It's a very deliberate, contrived linguistic trick. Yeah, they, they are trying to essentially make you say, well, why don't you want people in the Middle East to be able to play video games? Listen, they could play all the video games they like. I just think it's morally objectionable for you to offer an esports service to a nation killing people around the world. So, you know, uh, with the guy who approves it on is literally your boss. He's the chairman. 
Hmm. So, you know, I mean, yeah. these two, th- those two things don't conflate, but they will try it. They will try anything yeah. to get you to back down on criticizing them. What I think is, is truly it's a the shame. same thing in China, too, by the way. Mm. People start calling yep. you a xenophobe and other things, and it's like, oh, no, yeah, we have yeah. an issue. We have I, an issue with Xi Jinping, not with the people of China, right? Like, I think this yeah. is a thing where, like, the rank and file pick up this excuse, and I think people do have genuine reservations about this, about who gets to play, who gets access to what. And I think if you are a middle manager at some tournament organizer and you've internalized this line of criticism, I can't be that mad at you. But you have to understand that the people at these high levels have numbers of personal assistants. They have coaches. They go into meetings where they work out talking points. Like this is not uh, a genuine heartfelt response of, oh, we, you know, we really want to get access to this esport or this service to X number of gamers. They talk about the strategy. They develop plans years in advance. What you are hearing when it comes to this sort of thing are talking points that have been designed by somebody who makes consultants that make hundreds of thousands of dollars per job. Like you are being spoon fed something that is not genuine and it Mm. is almost not worth taking seriously. So the next question, and then we're going to have somebody actually ask over voice, but the, the next question is uh, very apt in the discussion we just had. Do the, Does the panel see a way, to, this is from Foreign Gamer, they have not responded to the invite, which is why I'm reading it. Do Does the panel see a way to get out of the Saudi and Chinese money, or at this point, is there no way back? Phew, uh, my immediate instinct is right now, no. For the foreseeable future, no. But it's also worth noting that, like, history is very weird and things turn on a dime. I think it's it's also very likely that at some point Mohammed bin Salman loses interest in gaming and esports. And just mm-hmm. as a lot of executives at media companies in the U.S. have decided to kind of cut their ties to esports verticals, esports coverage, uh, esports media, etc., etc., there, there can easily come a point at which Mohammed bin Salman says, I actually don't care about this. I can see that this is a loser for us. Forget about it and exits the space. That is a sort of maybe too rosy view on this. There are a lot of things that can happen. It's very hard to predict. For the foreseeable future, though, like I, I sort of imagine that the, it's not possible to escape unless there is some kind of comparable Western response that's not beholden to Saudi money, Chinese money, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the American government quick, and the, I was going to say the American government and the German government is not going to like magically turn on a dime and start making personal investments out of the government's bank account. I think that's like the really cru- crucial part of this, right? Is that like, that's the difference with Saudi Arabia and with China is that their governments, their nations, the state themselves interfere with commerce. And I don't right? think and we they, would they want put them. their money against them. Hmm. I, I don't think, yeah, we don't want the Ger- the German and the American government to start yes. doing this, but like they're never going to anyway. It's just not a part of the, you know, a part of those two nations where esports are bigger in the West, where most of the esports things happen in the West. So, you know, I think like that's to me, that's the only only way out. And I would say to your point, Mikhail, before Richard goes, like, I think we're we're stuck with the Saudis until at least 2030. I think like that, you know, we're that they want to see their vision through. They want to launch Neom as a city. Gaming is going to be a part of that offering. Right. And and so I think we're we're at least with them till, till then. We got at least another seven years of, of some some amount of Saudi control. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, it, it's it's pretty straightforward. I mean, I think uh, we're we're past the point of no return for esports, just in terms of what it is. Like what we have now, it isn't esports as I understand it. Um, it, it 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 actually the competition doesn't even matter anymore. You know, you see more and more teams sending in like you know sloppy lineups they've hastily cobbled together because they're meeting a content obligation. They don't really want to win the mm-hmm. tournament. You look at like the absolute travesty that is Evil Geniuses. You know, just hemorrhaging cash, putting in these inept teams into tournaments. You know, running their name through the mud, but they've got a contractual obligation to be there. So it doesn't matter as long as they <clears throat> fulfill that. So you know, the era where it was about excellence in the field, like any other sport, that's dead. That's gone. That's never coming back. Uh, and certainly, Saudi control is going to exist, and uh, you know, for a long, long time to come. There's no way that because of the Western world's dependence on oil. There is no way that we can ever hold Saudi Arabia accountable for anything internationally, and we won't. You just saw the United States government literally say we had to grant them immunity over the killing of Khashoggi. I'm not quite sure why, but you know they, that, that's what they claim. Mm-hmm. Um, we're never going to hold them accountable because we need the oil. Meanwhile, of course, we can exist in this quantum state of being where Saudi Arabia can bomb Yemen into oblivion, and we can sort of make excuses for that. And when Russia invades Ukraine, we turn even conscientious objectors into international pariahs. You know, we're, 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 it's a mess. I mean, we're a mess. You know, the, the, the way that we just, our, our exceptionalism to certain issues, it's despicable. So, you know, esports is never going to, esports used to be immune to the real world bullshit. And now it is real world bullshit. So it's dead. Who cares? Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. Um, we're going to have Tom Mathiason ask a question. Tom, you want to go ahead? No, you've been waiting. Thank you for your patience. Yeah, so one of the things, you know, I've been around esports for eight years as well, and I've seen all the, like, the rise and falls of different organizations investing. But now, obviously, as um, uh, you guys said, Saudi Arabia seems to at least be around for a while. But I think the one of the most effective uh, things that we've seen in terms of counteracting these types of moves is as silly as it is sometimes the mob mentality you know with neon being called out um when the lc and blast did this but also you know when when uh, individuals across the good example is carlos but it seems to me that um when it comes to these big investments like esl or the gamers aid tournament that that the fans kind of seem overwhelmed right by okay my team's going so i can't really point the finger at anybody else for committing to this so i'm wondering how you guys feel about you know do you think that there is a point where people will speak up against these teams i'm personally pretty pessimistic about this but uh, maybe you guys feel a bit more uh, positive about something shifting in public perception of how this is going because at the same time you know esports fans are also just most of them just want to watch their games and watch their pros play so yeah i think the three people on this call will uh, remain remain to be vocal but i think uh, more more broadly i think uh, the saudis and other governments the chinese government etc that have holdings in the esports space see us as a fly on the elephant's butt Right, like it, it, even Richard, the most uh, sort of esports relevant of the of the three of us, right, like is is small, pales in comparison to what they care of of a vocal voice, right? Like, and I think that's, uh, yeah, I'm 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 very pessimistic that the fans will actually give a shit in any meaningful way. And I think notably the Neom stuff, I don't think it's necessarily there was fan outrage, but I don't think that the blast and the riot deals blew up around Neom 
because of the fans. I think it was because there were a lot of talent broadcasters, et cetera, who stood up and said, I will not work with you unless this goes away. Right. And, and that is really crucial is I think that it was people in the room that like, we don't have a broadcast next week if we don't do something about this. And I think to Richard's point that he talked about earlier too, about broadcast talent now being iced out of some of the biggest esports scenes in, in the industry because ESL face it and esports engine have so much control. I don't necessarily think you can do that moral protest anymore unless you want your career to be over. If, if you're relying on those games. I mean, I think the fact that you, we can't even, uh, we can't even rely on the fans to sort of boycott things. You know, I, I feel like, you know, decades of recreational outrage has sort of really caused people to lose their taste for a genuine activist stance on things. You know, like, I'm, I put it this way, if apartheid in South Africa was around now and we had to rely on this consumer group in the current zeitgeist to challenge it, 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 would, it wouldn't end ever um, because, you know, it, we were talking, you know, world boycotts, you know, governments involved, people saying, no, 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 we won't. We won't stand for it. You know, musicians, artists, entertainment companies, politicians, activists. Th these days, it's like you just have to hope that whatever it is that the, the you know, the, let's say, you know, the Savvy Gaming Group does, it has to hit the right button on the right day to generate some faux outrage, and then they might change something. That's it. But in terms of will you be able to affect their bottom line, no, no, you won't. You'll still watch the games. You'll still say, yeah, but what can I do? And you'll give yourself a pass mentally. An occasion, and, and the, you know, you have to ask yourself, what would it realistically take? What, what, is, what is the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia not doing right now that it could do to make you give a shit? What, what could it be? Uh, and, and there you go. And so you answer the question. It wouldn't matter. They could come to my house tomorrow and cut me up and put me in a suitcase. And no one in esports would give a shit. That's the reality. And you have to understand when you operate in this space, that is the reality. That you know. The, the, so the voices, they're just voices. <laughs> Nothing is going to change. They're going to do exactly what they want to do. And I can't see a paradigm shift that is going to alter that reality. The one possible kind of light note I can think of here is that, you know, two decades ago, video game coverage, and I don't mean esports, I mean video games specifically, it was very enthusiasty. It was a lot of fluffy coverage, a lot of reviews, a lot of, you know, quick interviews about nothing with random game developers. And then, you know, a decade passed and we started getting journalists who were interrogating what was happening in workplaces we started getting more reports about what the video game industry actually looked like it went from stuff that was happening in forums to stuff that was you know finding its way into newspapers my hope is that you know we saw the gaming audience mature at some point they were young they didn't care there weren't journalists who could cover those subjects in games and then two decades later, there were, and now people can sort of muster up a bit more outrage. They can get mad at how a studio treats its workers. They can, of course, you know, say, you know, Activision is a bad place to work. Look at what we've learned. And a lot of people generally share the understanding that there are people at Activision who have done 
very bad things who have mistreated their workers terribly. I think right now, esports is where games were two decades ago. This might be a historical. Richard, I'd, I'd kind of want your take on this because I am coming to this a bit new. My hope is that as esports consumers grow up, maybe, maybe when they're no longer the like 10 to 20 year olds, they'll start looking at stuff that's happening. They'll have a, a richer understanding of the world. They might go, oh, okay, this is actually fucked up and I, I don't want to be attached to this. I don't like what's happening here. I'm going to exit. I'm not going to participate. That's a bit of a rosy perspective, but I think there's a chance that we see something similar happen. The kind of negative point of view you can take on that is, you know, what good has all this coverage of Activision Blizzard achieved? Uh, fans might know, consumers might know that Activision Blizzard isn't a very good company, but they're still going to line up for Warzone mm -hmm. 2. They'll get much angrier if Warzone 2 has bugs if there are cheaters in the game, then they will get mad about working conditions there, about uh, abusive people on yep. staff. Um, so there are kind of two ways of looking at that. I'm choosing to take the more positive one, but I think I leave that ultimately up to you. And, and Richard, I'd be curious to get your take on the age of esports. I, I think the problem you've got is, unfortunately, when people grow up and get to a place where maybe they want to make some ethical decisions in their life, uh, about esports, they uh, they don't passively they don't they don't consume esports anymore. They're too old. It's a childish thing that you put behind you. I mean, I've been you know if I've been in it for nearly twenty years, it hasn't happened yet where we've hit a generation that suddenly decides we're going to clean up the space. I mean, you have to understand just how ephemeral a lot of the reactions are. Like you talk about Activision Blizzard. Activision Blizzard have generated nothing but sustained negative headlines for three years produced shitty products for longer than that you know that are still best selling by the way modern it, warfare 2 is the best selling call of duty of all time yes, the, the re release exactly. and it's all faster than all of the others so to, yeah exactly you know, like, and you know let's not forget right so like with the blitz chung thing you know for the absolute outrageous crime of saying freedom for hong kong on a broadcast because blizzard don't do politics on broadcast you, mm. you might you might have heard <laughs> although if i painted myself blue and danced around saying fuck trump they would have made me Bobby Kotick's fucking assistant. But anyway, <laughs> you know, Activision Blizzard, uh, you know, they they they, they had a, they had opportunities, but when the with the Blitzchunk thing, they didn't even rescind the punishment. They just reduced it. They didn't even name him in their apology, and everyone thought this was a W. They went, "Oh, well done us, patting ourselves on the back," and then sexual harassment, discrimination, Wall Street Journal articles about Bobby Kotick threatened to kill a female assistant. And then when the voting comes around for the board, they right he tanks the share price to a point a hostile essentially a hostile takeover from Microsoft can come in sweep up the media company something that couldn't have happened without Bobby Kotick shenanigans and then they vote to keep him on as CEO he's the right man for the changeover apparently so no not <laughs> nothing nothing changes like nobody cares enough like you are bombarded there's a broader topic it's got nothing to do with esports. Every day you log on to the internet, you are bombarded with shit you have to care about. And the reality is this, you have to care about your own shit, but now it's suddenly 5% or 10% of my brain has to be dedicated to caring about the right shit online. And you better make sure you choose right. And you better make sure you don't push back and go, well, I don't care about that at the wrong time. Or you'll be utterly destroyed and have no cash here left on the internet whatsoever. That is what online discourse is like. So it's no wonder everyone's exhausted. I get it. But what does matter 
human rights, what does matter, civil liberties, what does matter, equality between genders, you know, gender identities and sexualities and races. These things matter on such a fundamental principle level that if you haven't got time in your life to care about it, I don't know how you can exist. So, you know, and that's how I feel about it. But unfortunately, I just feel everyone's so worn down with the nonsense and just seeing the bad guys win over and over and over and over again consistently that this is where we are. American optics mm. culture with meaningless resolutions and nothing is solved and nothing changes. Yeah, I think that's a good way to book in the podcast. I think it was a, a, a sad answer, but necessarily a truthful answer. And I'm very thankful to both Richard and Mikhail for having this discussion because I sat here all of last week after the Vindex news and went, where the hell is the coverage around this? I, you know, like just uh, other than the two of you and like a couple of other people, it just was like crickets. Quiet. I was legitimately yeah. depressed because I know all those people. I came up with those people. I used to sit in green rooms with those people, sipping coffees, and I used to drink at bars with them, sipping beers. And we all used to laugh about how evil and how shit ESL was and how one day we would all prevail and we'd have the last laugh. And now they've gone and joined the Death Star. I actually legitimately love some of those people. I consider them dear friends. Disappointment doesn't explain it to me. It makes me very despondent for the future of the industry, as you can probably tell by my tenor in my answers. Yeah, yeah, I I feel the same. These are people, you know, I lived in New York for a period of time. It, well, there wasn't, didn't seem like there was a, a week that went by I didn't see Mike Sepso, right? I I hosted a panel with with uh, Sundance Studio Giovanni, who's one of the co-founders of Index at at a law school, in front of some very impressionable like two L students who were very excited about potentially getting into gaming esports and entertainment wall right and it's like here here we are like in this public sphere and you know this is somebody i greatly respect and all i can go is all i can say is like jesus christ why right like that's that's my only reaction already and a so, multi-millionaire of course yeah I, yeah and notably we didn't even touch it the the uh the entire crew behind vindex all cashed out as part of the activision blizzard uh acquisition and made a ton of money when when activision blizzard bought mlg some years ago and then tanked it into the ground because they didn't know what they were doing with it so you know i it's, it's not yeah it, it's it's disappointing at the minimum and i i'm glad that we had this almost two hour long discussion to talk about it because unfortunately nobody else is kind of doing it and i I'm not one to exaggerate that like that and say like, oh, nobody else is talking about this thing. But I think in this very specific case, there was a, a lack of meaningful discussion over the past week that made me very, very sad. Yeah, I think so. Richard has taken the, the clear eyed perspective on this. And I think I've, I've tried to skew a bit more positive <laughs> here. And the, the one thing I'll, I'll say is that my hope uh, and again, maybe this is too optimistic and I leave it up to everyone else to decide. My hope is that the reason that this wasn't covered very much is that. If you ask the average esports consumer what Vindex is, they will not know what the fuck you're talking about. It is a company that most people in the space don't know about, and the the consequences of one company acquiring another, of, of EFG, this acronym, acquiring Vindex, which is a not very good name for a company, and you can't tell what it does, and you've never heard of it before in your life, does not matter to most people. My hope and suspicion is that that is the reason that people largely shrugged at this news. And I think that as the consequences of this have become a bit more clear, more folks have tuned in, more folks have started caring about this story. Um, but I don't know, maybe that's that's too rosy a view. 
That's all for our show. If you enjoyed this episode of Visionaries, you can find more like it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find the show. Special thanks to Prem Thodamkara, Sammy Daig, and Cecilia Siochetti for their help with this episode. We will see you next week.